together. Father, we pray that you would teach us your truth now from your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust your promise and to respond to your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would give us attentive hearts, cause us to to know that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And Lord, I pray that you would give us life by your word. I pray that you would intrigue us by what we find in this text. Cause it to humble us, even to terrify us. Cause it to change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you have access to the sermon title. Is that widely available? Online. Okay, so if you're online and you're logged in, you have access to the sermon title. It needs to be changed, okay? Whatever it says, here's what I would like to retitle the sermon as. um, Trust the promise, respond to the mercy. Trust the promise, respond to the mercy. To the mercy. And the reason for this, this change of sermon title is that this reflects the two parts of Genesis chapter 16. So if you're with me this morning, I would ask you to open a copy of the scriptures to Genesis 16, whether on a device or from a pew Bible in front of you, or maybe a copy of the scriptures that you brought with you today. And what we're going to see here is that in verses 1 through 6, Abram fails to trust the promise. And so that's the reason for the first part of the sermon title, Trust the Promise. And and I'm convinced that Moses presents us us with this passage to urge us not to respond to the promise the way that Abram does. Abram does not respond in a trusting way. He responds, we might say, in a a trying, as in an, an exertion of effort kind of way, and that's not what... uh, what the Lord wants us to do in response to the promise. So that's the first part, trust the promise. The second part, receive the mercy. This is, this is responding to verses 7 through 16, where in spite of the fact that God mercifully reveals himself to Hagar and makes astonishing promises to her, I want to submit to you that she does not respond as she should to the mercy of God. So we're going to take the passage in these two parts, and and my plan is to walk through, and uh, maybe you've been with me as I I talked about this this, uh, tour guide that my son Jake and I once encountered at this German fortress when we got to go to the land of Germany a couple of years ago, and this guy had on this crazy outfit, you know, he had on a top hat, and he had a cane on, and he had um, uh, like pinstriped uh, pants with like a uh, a checkered vest, I mean, totally not matching. This was the point. And this guy was so enthusiastic about the, the fortress that he was leading this group. I wasn't part of his group, but I tried to follow him around because it was so fun to listen to him talk about everything having to do with this fortress. And so I'm going to try to be our tour guide and talk about all the fascinating aspects of this passage. And I hope that, that in part, what you get from this is a new excitement about the Bible, and even a new uh, sense of curiosity about the Bible. And I hope that you pick up some, maybe some Bible study methods even from, um, from the tour guide showing you what's here to see. And then at the end, we'll come back and I'll, I'll summarize for us 
eight things I think that we're supposed to learn from this passage. Some of this will become evident as we go along. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 16, and we'll start with verses 1 through 6. We read here in verse 1, now Sarai, so you notice that I at the end of her name, her name will be changed in the next chapter, in chapter 17, Sarai, Abram's wife, and already Moses is teaching his audience, because what's going to happen in this passage is uh, Sarah is going to propose a solution to their dilemma, and namely that Abram take a second wife. And so in these first six verses, uh, Moses is going to repeatedly remind us that Sarah is Abram's wife, and he's going he's gonna to insist on this, I think, because part of the point that he's making is shouldn't have second wives. Polygamy is not God's design. So I think Moses is trying to make the point, Sarah is, is going to engage in a bad program, bad plan, bad program with bad outcomes. And so he's, gonna, he's not going to come out and say it like I'm saying it right now. The way he's doing is he, he's emphasizing Sarah, Abram's wife. And then he continues, had borne him no children. And we know, we know what this is resulting from. Back in chapter 11, verse 30, Sarah was barren. She had no child. And, and um, in 12.4, we read there that, that Abram was 75 years old. And in this passage, we're going we're gonna to find in the next couple of verses that Abram has now been living in the land of Canaan for 10 years. So Abram is, is now pushing 85 and Sarah still has borne no children, even though the Lord has promised in 12, 1 through 3 to Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation, which requires offspring. And then in the next statement in verse 1 here, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And I've mentioned this in, in previous uh, sermons uh, about Hagar's name. It's actually... Uh, the, a Hebrew word, gar or geir in Hebrew means sojourner, and then it's got the definite article, the ha on the front. So ha gar could be rendered the sojourner, and, and her name may have been derived from the fact that she was an Egyptian who was sojourning among the Israelites. Uh, it could also be the case among, they're not Israelites yet, the Hebrews, uh, Abram and his family. Uh, they won't be Israelites until uh, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel, and then they get constituted as a nation at Mount Sinai. But at this point, um, this woman, Hagar, is living among Abram and his family. She may have been uh, part of the, the group of people that Pharaoh gave to Abram. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 16, for her sake, this is Pharaoh, for, for Sarah's sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and cam camels. So Hagar may have come among uh, the, the, the people of Abraham at that point. And uh, she's serving Sarah as a maid. And she's an Egyptian. And she's a sojourner. And I, I, I mentioned before the way that Abram and Sarah, back in 1210, they went down into Egypt to sojourn there. And then in 15... Um, uh, 13, the Lord tells Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And that land is going to be Egypt. So there are ironies at work here in this passage where 
in the future, the people of Abraham are going to sojourn in Egypt, and they're specifically going to be afflicted and subjected to slavery there. And in this narrative, we have an Egyptian who is sojourning among the people of Abraham, and she's going to be afflicted, and she is in bondage in this narrative. Um, Along the same lines, I mentioned in a a sermon or two ago that um, Abram basically does with Hagar in this passage what Pharaoh had sought to do with Sarah in Genesis chapter 12. So not righteous, not good what Abram does in this passage. Um, Also, later in the Pentateuch, in in places like Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses is going to tell uh, the Israelites, he's going to say, you were sojourners in Egypt, so you are to love the sojourner, as in care for them, care for the sojourners who come among you, protect them. And in this passage, that is not going to happen. And that brings us to verse 2. Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And before we read on, I want to stop and remind you of what we saw back in Genesis chapter 3, when after the man and the woman sinned, God, he, he first Uh, speaks words of judgment, cursing the serpent, and then he speaks to the woman. And he says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. And and I think one of the outworkings of that pain in childbearing is Sarah's barrenness. And then he goes on to say to her, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And, and we, we saw from the way that those same terms are used in chapter 4 that this means the woman is going to want to take control in the relationship and the man is going to respond to her in ways that are uh, abusive and, and inappropriate and excessively harsh. That's exactly what happens here. Sarah sees a problem. God has made this promise about a child. And then Sarah proposes a solution. Look at how verse 2 starts. Sarah said to Abram, this is Sarah's initiative. This is is bad what's happening here. Sarah has a bad plan. It's going to have bad outcomes. And it's flowing right out of the words of judgment in Genesis 3.16. And so I would propose to you that Abram should respond in a godly way here and he fails to do so. How should he respond? I think he should say, we're not doing it that way. I think Abram should say, no, Sarah, we are not going to take this into our own hands and try to bring about a child by our own strength according to the way that things naturally and normally happen with human beings. God has made a promise, and the power of God's word is going to be enough to bring about the promise. That's how Abram should respond. It's not how Abram responds. So there's a lot going on here. There's a a failure on Sarah's part as she lives out the words of judgment in Genesis 3.16. And I think Moses wants us to see this. He wants us to see it's a bad thing when the wife takes the initiative. She comes up with an ungodly, unbelieving program. Not to say that women are in general ungodly or unbelieving. That's not what I mean to say. What I mean to say is this is an illustration of the outworking of Genesis 3.16. That's all I mean. Women can be godly. Women can be believing. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Uh, But here, Sarah does not come up with a godly and believing program. 
Also, Abram fails. Abram fails, and it's a headship failure. Abram should be leading. Abram should be saying to Sarah, Sarah, we believe that by the power of his word, God brought this whole world into being. So causing your womb to be fertile will be no problem for the power of God. We're just going to wait for him to do that. And he doesn't lead. He fails. Also, Abram should be protecting. Abram should be wise enough. Any, any person who has lived in this world for any length of time should be able to anticipate where this is going to go. He should be able to say to Sarah, Sarah, if I go into that woman and she gets pregnant, let's think about what's going to happen. You are going to be provoked to jealousy, and I want to protect you against that kind of outcome. Well, that's exactly what's going to play out. And Abram, he doesn't lead, and he doesn't protect. So look at the end of verse 2 here. And here I think Moses signals to us the failure where we read, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And I would just like to pause and let those words ring in the ears and in your ears. And maybe you already know, already know where I'm going. This week, as, as uh, my, my family and I, this week we... You know, we, we read the, the text to be preached in our, in our nightly family devotions. We don't get to do it every night, but when we're home and together, we, we do this together. And sometimes I'll stop and ask questions, and I'll say things like, what does this make you think of? Abram listened to the voice of his wife. And it's worded the exact same way that the statement back in Genesis 3 is worded. You remember the statement? When, when the Lord starts talking to Adam... After Adam has sinned, and he says to him in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Exact same words in the exact same order. Why does Moses do that? Because he wants us to know that Abram is now failing in the same way that Adam failed. Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Abram should object. He should lead. He should protect. Instead, he listens. Verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And again, I think this should send off signals, alarm bells. Genesis 3, points of connection. Remember, Genesis chapter 3, back in verse 6, I believe it is. Yeah, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And Abram's failure is just like Adam's. Adam should be objecting and interfering and stopping the snake and saying to the woman, no, don't do that. And Abram should be objecting and interfering and saying, no, we're not going to do this. And in both cases, Adam says, sure, I'll eat some of that fruit. Abram, Abram says, sure, I'll go into that woman. It's a total, total failure of manhood. Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to her husband, Notice that, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So these, these, these repeated statements, Sarah, verse 1, wife of Abram, 
Verse 3, Sarah, wife of Abram. She gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. It's like Moses is saying, this is not supposed to be this way. Not supposed to multiply wives. It's never going to go well. And if you've, if you've been around a long time, you, you'll, you'll recognize this story maybe. Years ago, uh, there was a guy that I think Matt Pierce picked him up and brought him to church. This guy was from Afghanistan. And um, as, as we began to visit with him, he began to talk about the culture that he came from. And I said, well, they practice polygamy there, correct? And he said, yeah, it can be done. You can, you can marry more than one, one woman. And I said, well, are any of your sisters uh, like a second wife or, or in an arrangement like that where there are many wives? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, my family has money and power, and we would never allow that to happen. So this guy knows, he knew, it's, it's legal, but it's not good. And anytime it happens, it, it just results in disharmony and disunion and strife and rivalry and envy. It's not pleasant. Here in verse 4, he went into Hagar and she conceived. And there, there's, there are like these contrasts between Hagar and Sarah. Sarah is old and infertile, and Hagar is young and fertile. And then continuing in verse 4, when she saw that she had conceived, well, this is a no-brainer, isn't it? We know what's going to happen, don't we? She looked with contempt on her mistress. That's not, in a fallen world that's populated with sinners, this is exactly what you expect to happen. Hagar gets pregnant and she begins to think, I'm better than her. I'm the one who can produce an heir. I'm the superior wife. And naturally, Sarah is not going to appreciate Hagar feeling those things, is she? Uh, there's, there's something even deeper here going on, there, on, on in verse 4 when it says, she looked with contempt. The word translated contempt is the very same word that's used back in chapter 12, verse 3, when, when the Lord says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. That word dishonor in 12.3 is the same word translated contempt in 16.4. Now, what does this mean? Well, uh, Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Sarah and Abram are one flesh. And so if you look with contempt on Sarah, you look with contempt on Abram. If you dishonor Sarah, you dishonor Abram. What does this mean? This means that Hagar is with those who dishonor Abram. That's, that's what she's doing. She's looking with contempt on Sarah, and thereby, according to the terms of the book of Genesis, thereby she's dishonoring Abram. And the Lord says, him who dishonors you, 12.3, I will curse She looked with contempt on her mistress. Now in 16.5, this is the way things go in our world, isn't it? It, In one way, this passage is so profoundly sad. But even in the sadness of it, it's profoundly encouraging. So we got to go through the sadness, though, to get to the encouragement. So believe me, this is going to be encouraging, but at the beginning, it just looks dark, doesn't it? I mean, here's our hero of the faith, Abram, and he, he, he's got a manhood failure, 
And then he takes this second wife, and now he's going to have a marital failure. He looks like a total disaster. Look at 16.5. Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked, with, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Well, this is a natural outcome, and it's like this sort of bickering and this fury and this disputation that is a natural result of the way that things have gone. But Sarah, she's, she's mad at Abraham, and she's concerned for her own honor, right? She looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But she's not, she's not recognizing her own failures, is she? Sarah is not taking responsibility for her part in this. She's not saying, you know, Abram, I've, I've really lived out Genesis 3.16 here. And I've tried to take control in our relationship. And I need to repent of that. And she's not saying... You know, Abram, God made us this promise, and I failed to believe the promise that God would give you a child by me. And she's not saying, you know, Abram, uh, I really disregarded Hagar and her life and what was good for her in this situation. Sarah's not con confronting any of her own failures, but she's full of contempt with Abram, and she's missing, she's missing the root issues in the relationship. She's only dealing with these surface level things that are growing out of the roots. And again, Abram, again with Abram, we see just a total failure, a total relationship failure, because Abram also doesn't say, Sarah, this all stems from Adam's sin in the garden, and it's, it's an outworking of God's words of judgment on man and woman, and we've failed to believe the promise, and I failed to lead you well, and I failed to protect you, so I'm going to take responsibility here. So Abram has failed to protect his first wife, Sarah, and failed to lead her well. Now he's going to fail to protect his second wife, Hagar, and he's not going to lead her at all. Look at verse 6. Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. That's terrible. You, oh, you don't like her? Well, just take your vengeance out upon her. Do whatever you want. That's awful. Total disregard for what's going to heal the relationship. Total disregard for what's good for, for Sarah or Hagar. And then look at verse 6. It continues. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So this is... This is really, really sad. It, it, it's, it's, it's kind of how sometimes it feels like our lives go, isn't it? The Bible is telling the truth about, about human interactions, human relations. But I would observe here that what we've got are people operating in the flesh. What we have here is not people operating in a, in a believing and... and now, we, we operate in the new covenant, so we can speak this way in a spirit-empowered way. Abram is not walking in faith. Notice the absence of anything in 16, 1 through 6 about Abram building an altar to the Lord, or Abram walking with God, or Abram calling on the name of the Lord. Why didn't he respond that way? Sarah says, hey, I got a solution. Go into Hagar. Abram should say, no, better plan. Let's call on the name of the Lord. Let's build an altar. Let's, let's cry out to God to fulfill the promise. 
So 16, 1 through 6, here, here I think is the big issue. They need to trust the promise. They need to believe the power of the word of God. As, as we were talking about this this week in our family, um, what, what, we, what we see is Abram and Sarah attempting to bring about God's promise by the flesh rather than by faith. And, and as we were talking about this, my wife said to me at one point, why would they do this? And here, here's, here's the answer that's ready to hand. They did this because this is the way you do things in their culture. In their culture, if your wife doesn't bear children, you just get another wife. In their culture, if you want to have a son, you just take as many wives as, it ta- as, as, as you need until you get the son that you're looking for. That's what they do in their culture. So in a way, what has happened is Abram and Sarah have embraced a culturally acceptable convention in, a, in an attempt to bring about the promise of God. And I would, I would invite you to consider, just, just ask yourself, in what ways has, has our culture made unbelief and action in the flesh seem natural to us? In what ways has our culture made it seem like the, the natural thing to do, the right thing to do, the obvious thing to do is act in unbelief and in fleshly ways? I don't know what it, as I, as I was reflecting on this, various things came to my mind, things that have to do with evangelism. You know, there, there, are, there are culturally appropriate ways to try to persuade people or market ideas to people that don't involve sowing the seed of the word of God and waiting on God to give the growth, waiting on God to do the miracle, beseeching the Lord to give life by the power of the new birth as we've proclaimed the gospel, financial provision. There are all kinds of ways that people come up with to make sure that they have what they need that don't involve hard work, diligence, persistence, frugality, um, and, and so forth, and, and being good stewards of what they trust God to, to, to meet their needs and supply them with. Um, ways to gain influence, there are all kinds of ways to pursue fleshly, cultural uh, routes to growing influence. And, and um, as I, as I, anytime, anytime I look back on something like this, and I, and I consider, okay, in Abram's culture, it was, it was obvious. This is the thing to do. And, and I think that what we, what we often refer to these things are, are blind spots. Abram has a cultural blind spot here, doesn't he? And, and here's what terrifies me about this. I hope it's scary to you. Future generations are going to look at us, and our blind spots are going to be obvious to them. It's going to be so clear to them. In fact, they will see our blind spots with the same clarity that we see Abraham's blind spots. And I promise you that the blind spot is not something that an unbelieving, wicked culture is going to be saying to the church, hey, this is your blind spot. That's not, that's not what it's going to be. 
Whatever the, whatever the culture is crying out to you that this is what you need to be and do, that's probably not where your Christian blind spot is. So I, we, we want to we read a passage like this, and we want to respond in humility. Because the truth is that probably if, if we were in Abram's shoes, none of us would have done any better. I mean, you've got to remember who this guy was. This guy, he doesn't have the benefit of the rest of the Old Testament. He doesn't have the benefit of the New Testament. He's a recently converted pagan. Joshua 24.2, when Abram and his brothers and father lived beyond the river, they worshipped other gods. So God has revealed himself to this guy and called him to himself. And now the Lord makes this promise and Abram says, hey, here's a culturally acceptable way for me to bring about the fulfillment of the promise. And he attempts it. And it's a fail. And to anticipate the encouraging part, this is not the end of the story. This is going to have devastating ramifications on the rest of Abram's life and on the rest of Israel's history. But it's not the end of the story. It's not where the story ends. So as we, as we move on to verse 7, let me just invite you to consider another question. And this question arises from the fact, you know, in the New Testament, Paul's going to make very clear that one of the qualifications for someone to serve as an elder or overseer or a pastor is for him to be the husband of one wife. And so in one of these curious, ironic features of the Bible, Abram doesn't meet the qualification, the biblical qualifications to be an elder of a church. Can you believe? Father Abraham, Father Abraham, to whom the Lord directly revealed himself, does not meet elder qualifications. So he has engaged in what we can, from our perspective, this is anachronistic, but I think Moses is, is clearly communicating monogamy is God's program, and the multiplication of wives is not good. So Abram has engaged in a, in a culturally appropriate but disqualifying sin. In what ways are we trying to build God's kingdom? And I say that because the, the coming of the seed was to bring about God's promises in an attempt to, to build God's kingdom. In what ways are we trying to build God's kingdom and bring to pass God's promises in culturally appropriate but fleshly and unbelieving and even disqualifying ways? And whatever we identify, we need to repent. We need to repent and turn. We continue now to verse 7. So Hagar has fled, and um, this is going to happen again later in Genesis. And when it happens later over in chapter 21, I think this is relevant information. When it happens over in chapter 21, Hagar thinks that she and the boy, Ishmael, are going to die. So they flee from Abram, and they think they're going to die in the wilderness because they can't find water, they have no food, and they have no one to protect them or provide for them or to lead them. And, and that's important, I think, in view of what happens in this narrative. It is so bad for Hagar under Sarah that she is willing to take this child into the wilderness where she has no one to lead, provide, or protect her and where she could very well die. Verse 7, in the midst of that affliction... The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. There's mercy, isn't there? 
The Abram, the man of faith, has totally failed this woman. Sarah, and, and again, it's not the end of the story for Sarah. You read, you read 1 Peter chapter 3, Sarah is commended as a godly woman. She, this is not the end of the road for her. She grew after these events. But Sarah totally failed Hagar. Hagar is out in the wilderness alone, and the Lord reveals himself to her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. Abraham failed her, but the Lord found her. The spring on the way to Shur. And ge- geographically, um, this is a, um, a route that would have led to Hagar finding her way back to Egypt. So I think this is also a tidbit that, that is revealing about Hagar that she's not thinking in terms of, I want to stay with the man who has received the promises from God, Abram. I want to... Uh, in other words, she's not talking like Ruth talked. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. She's thinking, okay, those people have been bad to me. I'm going back to Egypt and probably back to the gods of Egypt. The angel of the Lord says to her in verse 8, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Uh, This is interesting because the word that's rendered by the ESV, submit, is the same word that's translated back up in verse 6, dealt harshly. So you could say, some, uh, you could use a word like subject. Uh, Sarah subjected her, and then the angel says, go back and be subject to her. And as, I, as I've been thinking about this this week and, and um, contemplating this passage, one of the questions that came to me that I, even this morning, I got up this morning, uh, this question comes to me. Why would God send Hagar back to be afflicted more by by Sarah. Why would he say to her, return to your mistress, return to Sarah, and submit, to, be subject to, go back and be afflicted some more? Why would he do that? And here's the, here's the best answer I can come up with. Otherwise, she's going to die. Uh, she's not going to make it to Egypt. She's out there in the wilderness. She's, chapter 21, she's on the point of death. She stashes uh, Ishmael somewhere saying, I don't want to be present when he dies. And then she goes off to die alone. She is not going to make it in the wilderness. So I think the Lord sends her back because it's like he's saying, look, you need, you need to, I, my purpose is to keep you alive. In order for you to stay alive, you've got to go back. I, I think that's why she's sent back. But then the angel of the Lord says more in verse 10. And it's a merciful more. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. It is fascinating to me that in the book of Genesis, words like this are said about Ishmael. This is the language that's used in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Be fruitful and multiply, right? God blessed them and said to them, be, so that's the commission to Adam. And then it said again to Noah in Genesis 9:1, 9:7, "Be fruitful and multiply." And then uh, multiple times it said to Abram, the Lord tells Abram in Genesis 12:2, "I'm going to make of you a great nation." And then look at 13:16. "I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth," God says to Abram, "so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted." And then 15:5. 
He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And now God is saying to Hagar, in a sense wife of Abram, about Ishmael, seed of Abram, but not the seed of promise. As Paul will make clear in Romans 9, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Later in the book of Genesis, over in chapter 25, in verse 12, we read that there are going to be these generations of Ishmael And in verse 16, there are 12 princes according to their tribes. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Jacob, son of uh, uh, Isaac, is going to have 12 sons who become 12 tribes. So it's almost like Ishmael is this this mirror image of the people of, of Israel. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude, 16.10. God could be talking to Abram, but he's talking to Hagar about Ishmael. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. Does that sound familiar? From, I don't know, Luke chapter 1? Yeah, sounds familiar. And there's, there's, some, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this passage. In this passage, Hagar is a rival wife to Sarah. And then Sarah is barren, and Hagar is going to bear a child, and it's going to create strife between Sarah and Hagar. 1 Samuel chapter 1, you've got these two rival wives, Hannah and Penina. And Hannah can't bear children, and Penina is provoking her. And then And then uh, Hannah cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears her prayers and remembers her and opens her womb. And this kid is named, I'm going to pronounce his name in Hebrew, Shemuel is his name. This kid here in Genesis 16 is going to be named Yishmael. It's the same name that means God hears. It's the Shama, he hears, and then Ael, God. So you've got Yishmael here, Ishmael, and then you've got Shemuel, Samuel there, and, and I think that there are these dynamics at work where these remarkable births, so I would tie the birth of Ishmael uh, to the birth of Isaac in the, in the narrative, in the outworking of the narrative, and then that's connected to the birth of Samuel, and then all that's going to be connected forward to this elderly couple in Luke chapter 1, uh, not Mary and Joseph. Uh, Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah, and the Lord comes and says that Elizabeth's going to have a child, and then it's repeated, but it, the ante is upped. It's, it's made even more significant when God reveals himself to Mary and says, you're going to have a son. So the, these remarkable births, these miracle babies are building toward the birth of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. That's beautiful. The Lord, this is why we started with that uh, call to worship from Exodus chapter 2 today. The Lord heard the affliction of the people of Israel. The Lord, this this is a woman who's an Egyptian. We are never told in this book, in the book of Genesis, that this woman actually worships Yahweh. I, would, I, wish, that, I wish that Hagar had called upon the name of the Lord. She, she doesn't, apparently. I wish that Hagar had 
had done like Ruth and said, your people are my people, your God is my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. She doesn't. She, it gets tough for Hagar. She says, I'm going back to Egypt. And then she does it again. And, and then eventually she moves off and, and takes an Egyptian wife for her son Ishmael later, later in the book. But God has been merciful to her. God has been enormously merciful to Hagar. And here, so here's my second part of the sermon title. Respond to the mercy. Trust the promise. Respond to the, If God has been merciful to you, and if you are hearing this message, God is being merciful to you. God is making known his marvelous love to you. You should respond to it. You have an obligation. You have a responsibility to respond to the mercy of God, to cry out to him, to call upon his name, to trust him in his goodness, to live for him. That's how Hagar should respond. And all the indications are that she doesn't. She doesn't respond that way. The Lord has listened to you in your affliction. In verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. This is Ishmael. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He's going to fight with everybody. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. And then verse 12 continues, he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Over in Genesis 25, Verse 18, we read about the descendants of, of uh, Ishmael at the end of the verse that they settled over against all their kinsmen. So, th- so the, the, what's prophesied there w- is worked out in Ishmael's life. He's a fighter. He's a wild donkey of a man. Um, out of the mouths of babes, the Lord ordains praise. This morning, my daughter said, oh, Ishmael is going to be like Rabadash. We've been reading aloud the Chronicles of Narnia and in the horse and his boy. And, and I think, I mean, you know, the Muslims, they trace their line of descent to Ishmael. And I think C.S. Lewis means to present uh, Tash and Tashban and, and, and those, that, that people group as something like Muslims. And this, this fighter, Rabadash, who uh, attacks Arkenland and he means to try to conquer Narnia. When he's captured, Aslan turns him into a donkey. And, and I think... Lewis probably has Ishmael in mind. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Ishmael is not... There's mercy here, but ultimately it's not a saving mercy. God reveals himself to Hagar, but God doesn't make Hagar's heart alive so that he doesn't circumcise Hagar's heart so that she responds calling on the name of the Lord. And... This should be terrifying to you. You should, you should hear this and you should say, Oh God, don't let me be like Hagar and Ishmael. Because ultimately it's up to his mercy. Exodus 33, Moses says, Lord, please show me your glory. And the Lord says, Okay, I'll show you my glory. But I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The Lord is saying, I don't owe mercy to anybody. And I will distribute it freely to whom I please. This is... This is reality, and we should all respond to this reality with a heart that is terrified and that says, oh God, please don't make me like Hagar and Ishmael, who who experience the revelation of you and turn away from it and don't live for you. God, work in my heart so that I respond in a way that pleases you. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, 
You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, which means something like the well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So she responds to the Lord, but again, I think all indications in the book are she doesn't respond with saving faith. The, these, these key phrases, he walked with God, he called upon the name of the Lord, he built an altar, to, none of those phrases are, are used. Don't let Hagar's story be your story. You want, you want Abram and Sarah's story to be your story. So let's, let's read these last couple of verses and then we'll come back and I'll... I'll give you my points of application from this. Verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Notice three times here in these two verses, Hagar bore. At the beginning of verse 15, Hagar bore Abram. At the end of verse 15, Hagar bore Ishmael. And then in verse 16, Hagar bore Ishmael. Moses is saying, this is Hagar's child. It's not Sarah's child. This is not the realization of the promise. This is Hagar's boy. We have in this passage, here's my first point of application. We have in this passage a failure to believe in the life-giving power of the Word of God. But Abram's failure on this occasion doesn't stop God's promise, does it? If you keep reading, the Lord mercifully, kindly, with overcoming grace, reiterates the promise to Abram in Genesis 17. And then you keep reading, and Isaac is eventually born by the power of the Word of God, not by the power of the human flesh, not by the power of human effort. By the power of the Word of God, Sarah's dead womb is made alive. And this is true of us too. Our failures to believe in the life-giving power of the Word of God won't stop the promise of God. There's the encouragement. It's a sad passage, but it's, it's, an it's in an encouraging book. Number two, acceptance of a wicked cultural practice seriously damages marital unity and harmony. God sends Hagar back to Sarah, and it's going to go on and over in chapter 21, when we read about the birth of Isaac, this 13-year-old boy, Ishmael, is still causing trouble for Sarah. Sarah sees Ishmael laughing, mocking Isaac, and it's still a source of contention. The wicked cultural... Pra they got over it. They stayed married. They eventually received the promise. But I bet they had so many points of difficulty as a result of the presence of Hagar and the existence of Ishmael. They lived through it. Their marriage made it, but it wasn't improved. It wasn't made more happy. The wicked cultural practice seriously damaged their marital unity and harmony. And then, you know, if you step back even further... Um, over in Exodus 34, the Lord is going to say that he visits the sins of the fathers upon the third and the fourth generation. Do you remember who took Jacob down into Egypt? Do you remember to whom Jacob's brothers sold him into slavery? It was Ishmaelites. 
Jacob's, Jacob's brothers, when they, got ready to, when they got rid of him, they sold him to the Ishmaelites. So these, and, and the descendants of Ishmael have just continued to plague and, and cause difficulty for the children of Israel all across the Bible and all across history. So we want to be vigilant against the acceptance of wicked cultural practices that won't produce good. Number three, Sarah, her living out of the Genesis 3.16 judgment and her disputing with her husband and failing to acknowledge her own sin, her missing the point of the marital problem, that doesn't stop God from making her into the woman described in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I, I just want to read you these verses so that you see the, the difference between what we just read here in Genesis, 3, Genesis 16 and what we read in 1 Peter 3. Listen to, listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 and following. Let your adorning, Peter's talking to women, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. We wouldn't say that after Genesis 16, would we? But you, you take the whole narrative you take the whole story, and this is what you say. But this is what Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says about Sarah. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So praise God. Genesis 16 is not the end of Sarah's story. Number four, Abram's failure as a husband to his first and second wives and his and his disqualification from biblical eldership is not the end of his story either, is it? Abraham is treated in the New Testament as a man of faith, in whose footsteps all who are of faith follow, Romans 4. He, he's a believer, Galatians 3. And he was looking for the city that is to come, Hebrews 11. Abraham is, at the end of the day, Abraham is looked at and, he, and, and, and what the New Testament writers say about him is, he's a man of faith. I mean, this week we, we buried a dear saint. And there's no doubt that we, we, are, we are depraved people. We are sinful people. There is no doubt we could dig up all kinds of dirt and all kinds of nastiness in, from her life, just as, as you could in my life and in your life. We could all find all kinds of nastiness. And look at the way the Bible looks at people with nastiness in their lives. The Bible doesn't doesn't say we're done with him we're writing him off we're not looking to him for anything good no the bible says god's at work god's promise is at work and and that man believed the promise number five abraham fails hagar but the lord finds her there's hope listen look i know i've i've, I've talked to so many people who have talked about church hurt. They've talked about ways that, that they have been failed by the church. And I think, you know, you can find yourself where Hagar is. The, the, I mean, Abraham is not a church, okay? But he's, the, he's a representative of the people. He totally fails Hagar. The Lord didn't fail her. The Lord didn't fail her. So if, if the people of God fail you, look to the Lord. Look to the Lord. He's the faithful one. Jesus is the only hero. Number six, 
Hagar, this is tragic, this is terrifying, Hagar hears God's promises, and in a way she obeys God's command. She goes back to Sarah, but she does not call on the name of the Lord. She does not believe, and Genesis 15, 6, get reckoned righteous. She doesn't hope in God's salvation. You know what that would look like, hoping in God's salvation in that day? Hoping that God was going to give a child to Sarah. That would be a leap, wouldn't it? That would be a hurdle to get over for Hagar, wouldn't it? God's promise involves Sarah having a child. That's what I'm going to hope for. That's what I'm going to be reconciled to. That's what I'm going to look forward to. That's what I'm going to rejoice in. I'm going to set aside my own standing, my concern for my own honor, my desires about my own child, and I'm going to hope in the son that God has promised to Abraham and Sarah. How in the world could she do that? Only by a miracle of grace. Only by the power of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the, the circumcision of the heart that brings about a transformed perspective. And that would result in love for God's people. For her to feel that way would be for her to love Abram and Sarah. Number seven, Ishmael, here you can think of Romans 9, Ishmael descends from Abraham, but he doesn't believe the promise and he becomes seed of the serpent. Again, this is terrifying. You can hear the gospel, and you can go out and become an enemy of the gospel. Don't do that. Don't go the way of Ishmael and Sarah, and, and sorry, Hagar. Lastly, number eight. Abraham's sin has devastating, unintended consequences, but God is at work and he keeps his word to bless and to save. It may feel like I'm being redundant here and just saying the same thing over and over, but it's so remarkable to me. The devastating, unintended consequences. I mean, Abraham, he was not thinking of all of the fallout that would result from him obeying the voice of his wife and going into Hagar. He, all of that was unintended. I didn't mean to bring about all this marital strife. But God is at work. And God is going to keep his word. And God is going to bless Abraham, and God is going to bring about the salvation of the world through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning and you want to know more about what it looks like to follow in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham, what it, what it looks like to know this redeeming God, we'd love to talk with you about this afterwards. There are elders all over this room that would love to talk with you afterwards. The pro pers probably the person sitting next to you would be delighted to talk to you. I'll be standing at the back of the room there. I'd love to visit with you further. Um, I would urge you not to hear the promises of God and then go away and walk away and not call on the name of the Lord. And for those of us who walk with the Lord... There's great comfort here in our failures, isn't there? There's great, great confidence that we can take, not in ourselves, but in the Lord and in his word. And it's that comfort and it's that confidence, I'm going to come back to this, that, that will enable us to say to our neighbors, hey, how about you come over to my house? How about you come over for dinner? If you're not comfortable coming in the house, we'll sit out on the back patio. And, and it's that confidence and it's, it's our confidence our confidence in this powerful word of promise that will enable us to say to those neighbors, you ever think about what it looks like to know God? You ever considered the claims of Christianity? Would you be open to 
to maybe coming over on a regular basis and us opening the, the Bible together and us looking together at, at the claims of, of Jesus and maybe reading about the kinds of things that he did and what motivated him, it's, it's our, our confidence in the power of the Word of God that will make us evangelistic. And just to put this on your radar again, I'm thinking toward uh, first two weeks of August, praying about that for our own lives. My wife and I, we got approved. Hopefully, Lord willing, we're going to invite the baseball team over, um, uh, for hopefully first Saturday of August. And, and I would encourage you to be thinking in the direction of uh, inviting friends, neighbors, maybe co-workers into your home or onto your back patio or whatever, maybe to a park, and looking to looking to go there with the conversation, looking to share this life-transforming gospel. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your powerful word, and we thank you that, that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, we pray that it would be that way in our hearts, in our souls, that it would divide uh, joint from, uh, from tendon and and bone from marrow, and that it would open us up and expose our blind spots. Lord, we don't want to be swept along by these cultural conventions that are wicked in your sight. We pray that you would deliver us. We pray, Lord, that you would make us not only righteous by faith, but also righteous in our, in our attempts to follow the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would cause the word to bear fruit in our hearts and in the hearts of those to whom we proclaim it. In Christ's name, amen.